of the 15,000 deep fake videos that appear now online, 96% involve deep fake porn videos and 99% of those videos involve using female faces and inserting it into porn. Okay, so it is a problem of women in marginalized communities. But we also imagine that that kind of targeting of individuals could be used in ways. It could be a world leader who's, you know, faced with a deep fake sex video in their inbox with the suggestion, if you don't do what I say, right? Uh, if you don't scuttle, let's say, you know, some sort of diplomatic talks, then this deep fake sex video is going viral of you, right? Like, as we talked about the ways in which we could imagine not only harming the everyday person, but also we might see deep fake videos to undermine national security, diplomatic relations, and involving individuals. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 16th, 2020. On this week's episode of Arbiters of Truth, our podcast on disinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I are excited to bring you an episode we've wanted to record for a while, a conversation with law professors Bobby Chesney and Danielle Citrin on deepfakes, that is, artificial audio and video that can be used to depict a person doing or saying something they never did or said. In 2018, Bobby and Danielle wrote a paper on how deepfakes pose a looming challenge for privacy, democracy, and national security. The issue hasn't gone away. Doctored video Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and presidential candidate Joe Biden recently made the rounds online, sparking discussion on the distinction between deepfakes and other, less sophisticated forms of editing. I've written about the Biden and Pelosi videos with Bobby and Danielle, and I'm delighted to have them on the podcast. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 496, Bobby Chesney and Daniel Citrin on deepfakes. So thank you guys for all getting together for this podcast. We've been trying to get this together for a long time, so I'm delighted that we were finally able to gather the crew. Let's just start at the the very, very beginning. Um, we're talking about deep fakes. What are deep fakes? Bobby and Danielle. Oh, God, I love this. All right. So a deep fake is manipulated or fabricated audio and video that shows someone doing and saying something that they never did or said. Um, and the key is that it's both, it could be video that exists, and so it's manipulated and then fabricated, or just fabricated totally out of, let's say, photographs, out of whole cloth. Um, so there's no no other video to check out there. It is just a complete fabrication. And I would add that uh, there's a distinction between what we might call really true or more sophisticated deepfakes, where they're the product of a generative adversarial network, uh, pitting dueling algorithms against one another in a creation and detection cycle. That's sort of the high-end or bespoke model of it, but that's certainly not the most common thing. And what's common is alterations or synthetic media that are made with, that are not dependent on machine learning techniques, but that are done with other uh, less sophisticated methods. So the term and the phenomenon is pretty new, but you guys were amongst the first to warn about it. Do you remember how you first learned about it? Oh, it's always about sex. So I think, Bobby, tell me if my, my memory is right about our partnership. But I remember reading a story in, I think it was Vice, about deepfake sex videos. That there was a subreddit uh, that had appeared called, you know, backslash deepfakes. And it was basically a, a, a site devoted to deepfake sex videos. And, and essentially, it was like... um 
uh, porn had been faces of celebrities, female celebrities had been morphed into pornography. Uh, and I, I remember reading the piece. This was, you know, both the terminology of deep fake sort of stems from this subreddit. And the conversation is it was an article, I think, written by Samantha Cole, maybe at Motherboard, about this phenomenon. And I remember I had just seen Bobby at UT and I, I sent him the article and I said, you know, I think this, because we, we had both said to one another, we want to write about something that had converged notions and our shared interest in privacy and national security. And you wrote back, this is what we're writing about. Like, right? We yeah. were eager to write together. We weren't sure exactly uh, what the topic would be, but we knew it'd be fun and, and be a great experience. And, uh, you know, I think if you go back five or even 10 years, people would really reject the notion that the worlds of privacy and national security have a lot to say to one another. Um, they were viewed as uh, antagonistic, if anything, uh, which I think is a terrible mistaken way of thinking. I think increasingly people don't think that way anymore, except on very particularized issues. But we saw this and we thought, well, here's one where obviously the, the, the focal point for what you focus on and focal point for what I focus on, uh, all those particular values of uh, whether it's uh, protection of the individual from online abuses, uh, protection of our democracy and the rule of law, protection of the information space, uh, protection of uh, armed forces when they're deployed in a, in a combat zone. All these things came together as not equally necessarily, but all vulnerable to this emerging uh, tech trend. And we wanted to we wanted to jump quickly into the uh, discussion to map out both what we understood the trend to be, how, how it's different in kind, which is not often talked about, but why is this different from cheap fakes or simpler technologies of synthetic media? And then to take a first pass at both the benefits, which we do write about the benefits, but also the harms, and then a, a first pass and maybe a second pass as well on technological, educational, business, legal, regulatory solutions, or, or lack thereof. So... What you've both just said speaks to this sort of confluence of discussing uh, deepfakes and privacy issues generally in context of harms to personal dignity, but also national security, which is obviously where the two of your work overlap. So walk us through those two different kinds of harms. What are you worried might happen and how do they interact? Cool. Uh, Danielle, do you want to talk about the individual first and then I'll take the society? Yeah, and and one I think thing worth noting at the outset before sort of jumping into the individual harms is the privacy invasions and concerns that we had were twofold. The first is the invasions of privacy that be, can be yielded in way that form a national security problem themselves. That is using a deep fake video to extort, let's say, a world leader or to to achieve aims that are antithetical to to security. That's the first, and, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about the in, individual kinds of invasions of privacy that, that we worried about, but also the privacy concerns that we had as a solution to the deep fake problem. That is sort of surveilling ourselves in ways to create a digital alibi that would, we worried, be really a disaster for personal privacy and for society. That if we started surveilling ourselves in ways much beyond, like as we think of our cell phones as being constant location surveillance, but if we started adopting alibi services that would surveil everything we did and said, that as a response to and to protect against the deep fake or to provide that alibi, that to us was a disaster for privacy that we saw coming. 
So that's the sort of the two sort of privacy concerns that animated us both on the harm side, but then in the repair, that is the response. Okay, so the kinds of privacy concerns that that animated us and that we could possibly see being used against world leaders to extort and achieve ends that would undermine national security were the kinds that we saw that Rana Ayub experienced. So Rana Ayub is a journalist in India who in 2018, a deep fake sex video of Rana goes viral. And it was essentially a state actor. The Hindu nationalist government was not pleased with Rana Ayub. She writes very critically about the about Modi's government and its persecution of Muslims. And she's a Muslim woman living in India. And in April of 2018, a deep fake sex video goes viral of her. It looks like she's engaged in a sex act. And it is essentially within 48 hours on, on half of the phones, cell phones in India, spread through WhatsApp groups, on Twitter, Facebook, all of her online accounts are flooded, not only with clips of the video, but also rape threats. Um, this derogatory terms about her, her Muslim heritage, and, you know, threats is and doxing. So her home address is posted all over the internet. And the suggestion that she should be raped and that she was available for sex. And it silenced her. She was, here she was, a critic of, of the Hindu nationalist government. Um, she had exposed government corruption in her stories and in her reporting. And she was essentially chased off the internet. And it's those kinds of abuses and targeting of specific individuals that we could imagine not just, of course, causing harm to women and minorities who are most often going to be the victims and who are most often the victims. So of the 15,000 deep fake videos that appear now online, 96% involve deep fake porn videos and 99% of those videos involve using female faces and inserting it into porn. Okay, so it is a problem of women in marginalized communities. But we also imagine that that kind of targeting of individuals could be used in ways that could be a world leader who's, you know, faced with a deep fake sex video in their inbox with the suggestion, if you don't do what I say, right, uh, if you don't scuttle, let's say, you know, some sort of diplomatic talks, then this deep fake sex video is going viral of you, right? Like, as we talked about the ways in which we could imagine not only harming the everyday person, but also we might see deep fake videos to undermine national security, diplomatic relations, and involving individuals. So now I'm going to let, Bobby, I'm going to pass the, the discussion over to you um, for the sort of broader harms. Well, in addition to those sorts of uh, extortionate harms, you could have, the, I think the most obvious use case for a systematic harm would be something that tipped an election or interfered in an election. The example that many of us have talked about and, and comes so readily to mind would be someone releasing uh, a candidate appearing to say or do something incredibly inflammatory. So it's easy to imagine. It, it seems to be the candidate using a racial epithet uh, in a context where it looks like they're in private and this is what they really say in private, something like that. And doing it uh, maybe in the final 24 hours before the election, final 48 hours for the election, the harm could be tremendous, even if there is relatively rapid debunking. Uh, to get rapid debunking, well, you know, if it's a, if the deep fake is a spin off of a otherwise widely recorded and observed public event, you could get somewhere with that. If it's done in a way that looks like it's a private setting where there's no particular reason to think that anyone else is going to have a, a countervailing video proof of what really happened, not so much. Uh, then you're down to claims about uh, forensic analysis, if you're lucky, 
demonstrating that it's uh, fraudulent. And how persuasive will that be, especially if the nature of the fake is such that it plays into the uh, preconceptions and cognitive biases that, that some part of the audience may have about that person. There are versions of this where you play it out and it's about tipping into violence or tipping a population into uh, at least greater hostility in a military deployment setting overseas, or it could be a domestic law enforcement setting. So we can imagine a community where relations with law enforcement are terrible or worse, and then adding uh, maybe a spark to the kindling, you get a deep fake video seemingly showing the police chief saying this or that. There are really no institutions or institutional interests or individuals we can think of that couldn't be harmed in some way, whether it's a sabotage harm, a reputational sabotage that's private, that's public. Going back to the individual, you can think about employment or commercial interests that get sabotaged and the person never even knows it. Uh, romantic interests that get sabotaged, the person never knows it. At the uh, organizational level, whether it's a for-profit or not-for-profit institution, they can all be sabotaged as well. So um, everybody's got a stake in this game, I guess is the bottom line. So one of the phrases that you coin in your paper together is liar's dividend. And one of my favorite moments, uh, Danielle, when you were testifying before Congress about this, one of the questions came about what is the liar's dividend and your face just lit up that um, <laughs> they'd been paying attention. So if you could please tell us, what is the liar's dividend? And and I like, I'm going to, Bobby, I'm going to call on you because I, I want to make clear that it was a term that Bobby coined in our one of our drafts and and I had written to Bobby in the comments this is this is such a beautifully captures what we were what we were worrying about and Bobby's response in the in the draft he said back to me he's like I want to get rid of this term <laughs> I don't like it it's cheesy and I thought absolutely not and that's why I do I light up because I think it and Bobby I'm not let you explain it but I think it really beautifully captures the kind of trust and truth decay that profoundly worried us well, that was characteristically too kind. Um, it is, I think, one of our, our favorite elements of the project was, was that particular insight. And it is, a, you know, it is completely a, a joint product, although you're right that I did try to sabotage the name after first uh, specifying it and just feeling like somehow it was, it was too on the nose or something. But boy, it, it seemed to work. And it, you know, it came up again this afternoon. I saw Drew Harwell in The Washington Post had a piece, um, just retweeted that where he was making use of it, which I really appreciated. So the liar's dividend, this is uh, a straightforward idea that when we think about the deep fakes threat, uh, very often we're drawn to the possibility that a major part of the solution will be education. And if we could just get people to be better critical consumers of media, that will at least ameliorate the problem. Setting aside how we've already got ample reason to want people to be critical consumers of media, and we haven't yet figured out how to actually move people in that direction through any level of education. Setting that aside, even if we could do it, it's not clear that the benefit we would get on the deep fakes uh, immunity front would be worth the cost because an inevitable correlated aspect of that sort of educational impact would be people becoming inherently skeptical that what they're seeing or hearing is legitimate or real, authentic. And correspondingly, that people who are liars, people who want to deny something that they really did say or do, will take advantage of that by saying not fake news, but that's deep fake news. And I think we're already beginning to see indications of this. It's a, it's a real dilemma. 
I don't think there's much we can do about it because there has been so much attention paid to deep fakes that the idea is circulating very widely that there's all sorts of stuff you can fake with the right technology and liars are going to try to take advantage of that in courts of law, in courts of public opinion. That gets to something that I I've, think is really important about this idea, which is that deep fakes are sort of inherently scary. Um, you know, the idea that you can't trust what you're seeing right in front of you. But I would argue that this idea of deep fakes has been particularly powerful right now, at least within the United States, probably uh, within, you know, any country that's sort of dealing with this problem of the internet kind of gone wrong, where, and I'll return to the United States here, on the one hand, we're sort of facing this crisis where people feel like they can't trust what is in front of them um, from social media, from public figures. I'm thinking, obviously, of the president, but also that we don't know if education on these issues will make things any better, that you know, Bobby, you and I write on Lawfare every day about, you know, various legal issues. And at times I say to myself, I think this is really helping. And just speaking for myself here, at times it just feels like banging my head against a wall. So <laughs> I, is is there an extent to which sort of anxiety about deep fakes is really a projection of anxiety about other things? I think it's maybe the tip of the spear for this larger set of problems. Uh, I, I share that feeling of wondering whether the only people listening are the already convinced. Uh, we have a general problem in our society, uh, in our information space of people who aren't already convinced, not wanting to hear what others have to say. And it, it stems from the same sets of cognitive biases. And by the way, you know, while we're in the business of giving credit where credit's due in the paper that Danielle and I co-authored, um, I really want to really allocate credit for the outstanding survey of the cognitive bias type problems that uh, fronts a lot of the paper to Danielle, who really had such a keen grasp of all the different dimensions that were coming into play. It was a very depressing article to work on, uh, as you might imagine, but it was offset by the joy of working with her. Yeah, so I think deep fakes and the attention it's getting is in some ways a bright, shiny object, in some ways because it's not fully present yet as a threat. And by the way, we're really clear, I think, in all our writings about this to, to underscore that we're, we're anticipating the problem and forewarning of it. And so it, it gets a little wearying when people say, you know, you keep talking about this, but we have a different problem. I know, I know that. We do have a really serious problem. And nothing we say about deep fakes is in any way to detract from the currently preposterously bad problem of disinformation and cheap fakes that we've already got. And I, just one thing to add that I find also really depressing is that, so forgive me, I'm, I'm always here with the sad stuff, <laughs> but that, and it's, uh, you know, often the response to, to Bobby and I is video and audio have had their day. They are no longer going to be helpful as has privacy. And that in some sense, we should just get over it. That is the notion that video and audio is useful and helpful, whether it's evidentiary matters or the way in which we understand our TV culture is just, we're gonna get beyond audio and video. And I find that a bit depressing in part because we have often seen the story about human rights and our understanding of, of real suffering 
is is we have the public often gains attention to those issues because of photographs, because of video that brings alive meaningful human suffering. And so the idea that someday video and audio don't matter is to belie the fact that, that it's really incredibly important to document human rights rights abuses and to bring alive suffering. So I find the notion that we should just get over ourselves and just give up on the project of having any uses for audio and video, both I think unrealistic and troubling, right? And that of course the notion that we should get over our privacy, that the deep fakes isn't a new problem, that it's not gonna present new problems for privacy and that there is no privacy anyway. You know, we are we fight against that tie, but it's certainly one that I think we have to we have to press hard against. So you gave me the invitation, Bobby, and I might accept it to play the skeptic of why should we be particularly concerned about this threat? I mean, especially given that the two big examples that people are worried about recently uh, have not been deep fakes. So the first one was the Pelosi video, which was slowed down uh, to make her appear uh, intoxicated. Um, and that was just using sort of very standard uh, video editing technology. Uh, and the second one more recently uh, was a video of Biden where certain comments were taken uh, dramatically out of context uh, to be extremely misleading. So neither of those are deep fake technology. They're nothing particularly new, um, but they are still using images and those cognitive biases uh, to sort of motivate and, and um, enact people. So why should we worry particularly about the deep fake threat? Perfectly fair question. I'll even, I'll even compound my, the challenge to me by adding further that friends like you know, Sam Gregory at Witness one time observed that some of the, the worst harms don't require changing the media at all. Just change the caption. Just describe it differently. And, uh, and then people will believe that. So where's the negative value added, if you will? The deep fake trend. And I would argue it's going to be this. Because of the substantially and qualitatively higher degree of difficulty of both detection and persuasion once detected, persuasion of others that something's fake. So the, the, the inherent credibility of it, it's, it's a higher level of magnitude and the quality of it being above the threshold of what our eyes and our ears normally can, can detect as a matter of you know, centuries of evolution and trusting what they tell us looks authentic. I saw it, I heard it. Getting above that threshold matters because that can make inroads amongst the audience that isn't disposed by prior belief conception, uh, echo chambers they live in. It'll make inroads with the people who the cheaper stuff might not. So for example, when the, when the Pelosi video and the Biden uh, truncated video went around, I don't feel like I was particularly inclined on the front end to believe them. And I was pretty ready. My first thought was like, this, this looks like it's been doctored. This seems like it might've been, this seems unlikely because my own set of preconceptions didn't include that Pelosi's drunk or, or that Biden's secretly saying these crazy things. There are others for whom it's like, no, no, I'm ready to believe that. Uh, but for someone like me in a scenario like that, or for any of us in a scenario like that, something that looks really legitimately real might have more purchase. And so you're going to drive the wedge further with these once they're deployed, not just effectively technologically, but there's, there's an art to it, right, to, to really do it effectively. What is that caption you put in there? Just how bad do you go with the fake? For example, I would argue that uh, you'll be far more effective as a malefactor if you use a fake to put someone in a pretty bad light, but not an outrageously bad light. Put them in an outrageously bad light, it's going to set off red flags, people wondering if they possibly are that stupid. Do they really do that? If you just go for a little bit of damage, people not, may not think to ask. 
So we we've talked about the Nancy Pelosi video and the Joe Biden video, which brings us inevitably to the 2020 election, <laughs> where obviously Evelyn and I, along with Kate Klanick and Alina Polyakova, started this podcast in part to talk about disinformation in the run up to the 2020 elections. And I think deepfakes are particularly interesting in that context as well. You wrote in your original paper that elections are vulnerable to deepfakes in a separate and distinctive way. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? To be clear, it has a lot to, there are a number of things, not just elections, that it has particular vulnerability to, but it all has to do with just sort of decisional choke points. That is, if you release a deep fake at a very, at a, a very sensitive moment in time, when we're making important decisions, and those decisions in, in some sense are irreparable. You can't turn back an election. You can't turn back uh, an IPO. If a deep fake is released at just the right moment, whether it's two days before an election, the night before an uh, initial public offering, and the deep fake then can tip how people behave. It can tip an election. So that deep fake that Bobby was mentioning about showing a candidate saying something really inflammatory, right? It could change how the voters, maybe the voters don't come out to vote because they think, well, gosh, if my candidate who I believed in said X, Y, and Z, I don't want to come out to vote for them. Doesn't necessarily mean they'll, they'll, you know, flip their vote to the other side, but it can fundamentally change the result. And the same is true, of course, with an IPO, with a, the head of a bank saying, let's say, or the head of a company saying and doing something that was despicable or suggesting their business model is a fake, the IPO could crash. And that does certainly, that, that can be really difficult to overcome. So it is what makes the election a kind of unique example is that it's a moment in time in which there are important decisions being made and decisions that can't be undone that make the deep fake potentially so dangerous and so harmful. So with the election coming up, there has been a lot of attention around the threat of deep fakes, in part because of your wonderful scholarship and uh, bringing attention to the issue. And so as a result of that, um, social media platforms are sort of thinking about this. And um, we're going to get Quinta in on the co-author love that's going around here. Something that you three have all written about for Lawfare is Facebook made a recent announcement about a policy update to do with deep fakes. So before asking you uh, what you think about that, policy. Uh, Quinta, maybe you could tell us what that policy was. Right. So Facebook's announcement, it sort of bans deepfakes, but defines it relatively narrowly and doesn't ban anything outside that category. So specifically what the platform said it would no longer allow is misleading, manipulated media that has been edited or synthesized in ways that aren't apparent to an average person and would likely mislead someone into thinking that the subject of a video said words that they did not say. That's a quote. And then it also says it's the product of artificial intelligence or machine learning that merges, replaces, or superimposes content onto a video, making it appear to be authentic. And to be clear, all this excludes parody or satire. It also excludes video that has been edited solely to omit or switch around the order of words. So Facebook's clearly trying to walk a fine line there and avoid uh, taking down sort of creative transformative works. Okay, so then uh, how effective is this policy? Do you think it's attacking the right problem? Do you think it's going to uh, help combat the kinds of threats and, and issues that you're concerned about? Or is it too narrow? 
one thing I just wanted to add, Quinta, just to emphasize in your description of the policy is that it only applies to deep fakes that involve showing people saying things that they never said. It doesn't cover the deep fake that shows someone doing something that they didn't do. And so for the three of us, as we talked about kind of our reaction to the Facebook policy that ultimately got rolled out, a key, so I, I know we're going to start talking about the, our criticisms that we had in our, our piece. Uh, one criticism that immediately came to mind is that by excluding deep fakes that show people doing and saying things that they never did or said, that we're going to leave a whole lot of mischief out. That is, there, there are deep fakes that we can imagine showing someone stealing something that they never, where they were never even close to the scene of the crime, right? Or doing something that's destructive that would harm their reputation or have impacts with, long, you know, both um, in the near and the longer term. So we worried that it was unnecessarily narrow because it doesn't cover the deep fake that doesn't have, you know, articulable audio expression. It only would cover, you know, words said that were never said, then and they didn't cover actions. And so that, you know, as an immediate reaction was a problem. It, you know, overly narrows the field. I'm going to let you guys take over on the other criticisms that we had, but that I know that first came to our minds as troubling. Well, and another one is that far be it for Danielle and I, uh, in particular, to to criticize anything that focuses on deepfakes, since we ourselves focused on it so much, including on this interview. But it's striking that the policy is deepfake specific. And as we've noted several times in this conversation, the current problem is more a problem of cheap fakes and, and lesser forms of synthetic manipulation. Now, to be fair to Facebook, it's not that anything goes as long as it's not audio or, or oral uh, deepfake content. It's that it falls back into their existing default system of third-party review where a fact checker may make a judgment that something's false. It's, it's just that at that point, the remedy is different. And there it's, it's tagging and deamplification or lowering its uh, presence and circulation in the algorithm, but it's still there. Now, I don't necessarily mean to say that, no, everything needs to go, but I do want to question the drawing of the distinction if you're going to have a category of things judged false, where that's out, and another thing that is still in but gets this just sort of reduced visibility but still visible, you need a, a good justification for that line, both in terms of uh, the feasibility of drawing the line. And I think that's a really hard question here. I don't understand how they're going to draw that line because um, I don't know that the forensics are available to them to, to really do it at all, let alone do it at scale like you'd need to. Uh, and then I don't know if the justification's there theoretically to explain. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe our arguments about deepfakes are the justification. But if that were the case, I would say, as as co-author of those arguments, that ah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that much weight on the distinction. I don't think they should bear such a meaningful distinction. So, can you talk a little bit more about that technical feasibility and the technical capabilities? First of all, like how good are deepfakes right now? Or is this threat here now or is it just on the horizon? But also, what about the forensic capabilities? Do we have the technology at the moment to tell the difference? Um, or has Facebook uh, released a policy that is excellent uh, on paper, but in practice is just not going to be able to be operationalized? Well, I wouldn't purport to be an expert on what Facebook's able to deploy internally in their detection processes. And I will note, as they have noted, that 
they've got this big challenge out there. They're putting their money where their mouth is. And, and by the way, this is where we should pause and say something we should have said at the outset, which is, as we say in our post with Quinta, kudos to Facebook for grabbing the bull by the horns and at least doing something and at least drawing attention and focusing on this and taking it seriously. Our, our quibbles are that. They're quibbles about how we would go further in certain ways, but we actually overall commend them um, and would like to see others making as much effort. But anyways, they are uh, going to need to have some ability to decide what is within scope and what's not in scope for a deep fake specific policy. How do you do that? There are, there are a couple of possibilities. One is you deploy a capability that I guess we can call this forensic detection, where you're analyzing the media content and you're looking for artifacts or other features in it that enable you to make a judgment that something's been altered in a meaningful way. That's not just a, it's not just a filter. It's something substantive to the image or the sound. There's a lot of work being done on that. As I said, Facebook's trying to incentivize more of it. DARPA's pouring money into it. Lots of effort going on. To the best of my knowledge, there is no silver bullet solution at the current time. And I think it's going to be very hard to get to silver bullet solutions, in part because when we focus in on the GAN or generative adversarial network created ones, it's in the very nature of the GAN process that the creation half of the algorithm, the way it gets good is in, in constant evolutionary cycle with the detection mechanism. That detection mechanism that belongs to whoever created the creation mechanism, obviously, it's going to be pretty good at detection as well, by definition. That's not available to anyone else in most cases, if not all cases. Whereas the, the effectiveness of the creation side of the house, it's effective as against all humans, right? At least in terms of our human perceptions. So um, forensics, I hope we get there someday. But that sort of technical analysis is, is an uphill battle. And when we get there, then it's going to be an interesting question of how scalable the forensic detection solutions are. Um, are they the sorts of things that platforms can build into their screening functions at scale and at speed? Or is it the sort of thing that requires a little bit of lab time? Separately, there's analysis of context. And that's a big part of how anything that's put out there about some public figure where it might have been might have taken place in a particular time, place, or with others around. That creates an environment of factual clues and also a high possibility of other recording devices capturing content that can be used to compare and contrast. So you can find things like that. And then sometimes there's internal contradictions within the media that are brought about. Maybe it's shading. Maybe it's the fact that no one's blinking, that sort of thing. So there is some of this. But again, how, how you use this to detect not just that something's been altered, but then going further and saying, and the way that it was altered counts as a deep fake rather than a shallow fake. Well, that's that's a whole nother layer of difficulty. And it also, just to emphasize the, and I think Facebook clearly recognizes this, even if it's not stated in the in the policy, is that clearly we need contextual evidence. That is, this is an expensive, so let's again note that Facebook for coming forward on this issue, it's an expensive proposition to, to make to have this policy and to implement it. Because it's not just the detection side, which is, okay, you're using this kind of technology that troubles us, you know, manufactured using some form of machine learning and AI to create audio and video showing people saying things they never said. But it's going to require human content moderators to look at the evidence to see, is it also parody or satire that then would exclude the deep fake from being removed under the policy. And so it's a significant investment in time and energy for Facebook 
that is against their interests in some respects because the more content that is negative and novel that's going to attract our attention and clicks and shares, it's better for their business model. And so just to emphasize the kudos to Facebook for trying, uh, it doesn't seem to be within their, it's not in their necessarily in their self-interest to have a policy that's going to be expensive um, to execute. It's really important as a social welfare matter and a social good, but it's expensive for them and their bottom line. Uh, and it's going to need, you know, a look at context. And, you know, Hani Farid, I, I feel like I've had the great pleasure of giving a bunch of talks with him. Uh, and what's been fun is every time, you know, we give a talk together, he will say something like, it's so great because he's the technologist. And I'm always like, yeah, yeah, listen to him on everything descriptive. Uh, and he, he said he thinks we're years away from any definitive authentication tool. Years. So, um, you know, the idea that we're going to have a silver bullet, you know, right, Bobby, we, we know that it's, it's not here yet. And I think our liminal phase where we're going to be really disruptive and technology can't answer this question is always going to be true because we're always going to think about satire and parody, but particularly when it comes to just the detection of a deep fake itself. So years away from a detection technology, but how far away from a like really convincing deep fake and not far away at all. As far as um, both Bobby, so help me if, if you've heard, you know, we, we talk to a lots of the same, you know, we're always in conversation with these folks. And my understanding is that particularly as to audio, that deep fake sophistication is here now. That they, we can create audio that's so sophisticated, it's almost impossible to tell it's a deep fake. And that we are months away from deep fake video that has that kind of sophistication that technologists will be befuddled and impossible to find the the defect. Bobby, are you hearing the same thing too in Quinta? Yeah, so I would say that the best way to think about it is as a uh, sort of a bow wave in which uh, there's a, a spectrum of quality that uh, is constantly increasing and just just how high the quality has to be to count as deeply persuasive is it's kind of a, a difficult thing to say but we can at least say that the the array of people with access to the algorithms and the mechanisms that can best create the currently highest quality it's constantly moving forward such the state of the art that's in the laboratories of academia governments and the private sector that stuff, that that sort of exquisite, to borrow a recently popular phrase, uh, form of imp- of production, that's not widely distributed by definition until it is, and then that becomes kind of the current new normal. So there, there's good quality stuff out there already. Um, depends on what kind of access you have to what uh, more capable labs are producing. And uh, the really interesting question, the one that matters the most, I think there's there's sort of two places where we want to keep sort of taking the temperature, as it were. One is what's on the dark web, reasonably available as deep fake for service. And then, and by the way, that points towards some roles for law enforcement to be in that space, not just observing, but perhaps um, muddying the water so there's not trust in there, but that, that's a separate topic. Uh, and then secondly, and much, much harder to check, what are intelligence agencies capable of doing around the world? And that's really hard to judge. Uh, I think the recent, I think the NDA or another recent bill actually did demand a report to Congress from, I guess, the DNI on uh, if and when they detect deep fake use by other countries or at least certain other countries. And I don't know that the public will hear about that. Maybe they've already got a report to give. I don't know. That gets to something, Bobby and Daniel, that I'd been meaning to ask you in in light of the Facebook policy, as we sort of 
head toward the election. Are deepfakes an issue on which you both are expecting further sort of splashy rollouts from big platforms or, you know, reports from the government, all that kind of thing? Is Facebook sort of the tip of the spear here, to use a phrase that was used earlier in the conversation? Or do you think Facebook is sort of so far out front in terms of the technological possibilities that this may be all we hear for a little bit? So we do know that Twitter banned deepfakes before Facebook did, but without the kind of very careful explanation that Facebook gave. Um, do I antis- do we anticipate seeing it, you know, from other platforms? I know Bobby and I can say that, and we should say this, that we worked with Facebook and I work with Twitter to help them on their deepfake policy. And none of our discussions, ha- I, our hope is always that in, in helping them and advising them, I always feel like a disinterested player. I'm never paid for my work so that, you know, we can both comment and help, but of course be critics from the outside. But I don't know of any other companies that are, as engaged. Also, Reddit has banned them and banned them particularly when it came right after the release, you know, the news about the deepfake sex video subreddit. Uh, Reddit immediately banned deepfake sex videos. So I, I but I don't I don't know, Bobby, you take over now. Um, that's as, that's the most intelligence that I have about companies um, having some big splashy news about their banning them. Same. I don't know of anything looming. I wouldn't be surprised if some other platforms came out in a visible way. Um, and kind of the more interesting question is, now that we're now that we're here in 2020, it's already been a real kick in the pants. What sort of fun uh, can we look forward to in the nature of manipulated video? And I think we were we are going to have some further examples to add to our existing litany of the the Acosta video, the the Pelosi video, the Biden video. Sort of a pattern there, but anyways, there's there's probably going to be a lot more to come. But I suspect in this year, it's all going to be cheap fake stuff. It's the deep fake threat for the United States, at least. It's something to look forward to. So, as the only non-American on this podcast, I can't believe that I'm going to be the person to ask this question. But we are talking about banning a category of expression here. Is this something that you worry about at all? Are we going to be losing anything valuable, or are deepfakes just bad all the way down? And this technology just has no good uses, and we should—it's so harmful uh, that we should really, really restrict its use. And to be clear, Bobby and I, when we um, in our in our article in our work, we argue that it's only deep fakes that cause tangible and harms and including or concrete harms that include privacy invasions um, and that exclude satire and parody and that do deceive the reasonable and average person. Um, those are what we, they're types of speech that we think don't even fall within the boundaries, right? They're not protected by the First Amendment and free speech values because they essentially are tantamount to defamation. Defamation, impersonation, because we have, we have, um, law allows us to prescribe all sorts of lies that cause cognizable harm, and that includes perjury, impersonation of government officials, um, and other damaging falsehoods. And deep fakes that cause these kinds of tangible harms constitute speech that we don't think is either covered by the First Amendment or it doesn't receive the kind of important protection. And where we agree there should be limits is when when deep fakes involve satire and parody that would be important and concern public figures and officials that we would say, this is important for public discourse. This is not the sort of thing that should be banned. 
that law provides a lot of give within the First Amendment to ban deep fakes. And also, let's just talk about free speech values, right? Uh, for the person who's being impersonated, right, it, they ha- their speech is being co-opted. And often the net effect is also silencing to them. Um, so you're not only stealing someone's words and images, right? You're, you are expressing in a non-consensual way and pretending to be saying something that they never did or said. Um, and so it has zero evidentiary value. It, it undermines the notion of self-governance because the deep fake, we can't assess the credibility of what the person is saying because they didn't say it, right? So as we think of notions of self-governance, of why we think, why we care so much about free speech, because it lets us figure out the kind of world we want to live in, right? It helps us make informed decisions about our democracy and more, more broadly about our culture. Deep fakes undermine that project, right? We can't figure out in a credible way. There isn't veracity behind who's speaking and, and talking, right? And certainly if we think about the marketplace of ideas metaphor, which doesn't mean it's always about the pursuit of truth, but the notion that we could interrogate truths, well, deep fakes are positively false, right? They undermine a marketplace of ideas and distort it with falsehoods. So even with our strong commitment in the United States and uh, to free speech under the First Amendment, as well as our own free speech values, I think this is speech that is harmful to the marketplace of ideas. It's harmful to our system of free expression. And that's why I think we feel comfortable, Bobby and I, as we talked about our legal solutions, about proposing laws on the books that exist now and the potential for laws that could ban harmful impersonations of of individuals that we think we can and should ban them. Let me just stomp all of that. I don't view this as in any way having to be antithetical to free speech. And, and I'd be upset about that if it, if it were. I think the idea is to, insofar as we're talking about any interventions that would tend to punish or deter speech, we're talking about punishing or deterring speech that's already unlawful, that's already perhaps uh, it's a civil liability issue, maybe even a criminal liability issue. And it's presenting in a particularly dangerous technological format, which gives rise to all sorts of complexities. And the interesting question isn't, what is it you want to try to to remove from the marketplace of ideas because it's so fraudulent, which is what we're basically talking about. Uh, That shouldn't be controversial. It's just a question of how do you come up with levers that actually do this effectively without being over deterrent in this very complex uh, intersection of technology and business and communications. So let's close by talking a little bit more about those potential legal solutions. The two of you both addressed this in in some depth in your original paper. Uh, What do you have in mind in terms of levers that the legal system can provide to address the problem? We we do have civil torts. So we have, you know, defamation and um, other kinds of intentional infliction of emotional distress. We have tort claims. We've got potentially some state criminal laws against impersonation. The problem, though, with either using sort of the civil law system and um, so lawsuits as well as prosecutions is that we have a bunch of barriers that are going to make them difficult, which is finding the perpetrator, right? Identifying the person, having the resources to bring lawsuits. If you can find them, having them be in our jurisdiction so that we can bring them into our courts. And so there's so many barriers. I feel like, you know, Bobby, as we talked about it, the the number of barriers to adjudication 
that is in a civil arena as well as prosecution seemed almost insurmountable. We laid them out uh, in an endeavor to be clear and comprehensive, but we also contemplated the notion of the, the cheapest cost avoider is the platform. And so, and right now, especially at the content layer, sort of social media companies w- that will be, of course, involved in the viral spread of, of deep fakes that are harmful and not satire and parody, they're immune from liability. Uh, they ha- enjoy a legal shield under the Communications Decency Act that's very broadly interpreted. And so we sort of, as we think of if, if it's not that there aren't legal claims under, you know, tort law, under, you know, potential for criminal prosecutions, but we also wanted to think hard about those gatekeepers because they are so important to the spread of deepfakes. And so we considered the possibility of changes to Section 230 that are in line with um, something that Ben and I, Wittes and I have argued, um, a sort of approach that would condition the immunity on reasonable content moderation practices in the face of illegality that causes clear harm. And so we keep the immunity, but condition. And we also added, and I thought was really helpful in thinking this through with Bobby, additional requirements, the conditioning Section 230 immunity as well, sort of pairing it with an anti-slap, a federal anti-slap provision so that we wouldn't have sort of strike abusive lawsuits and uh, also considering a possible sunset provision. So I'm going to let Bobby take over here. But we, we sort of thought through not only the potential for going after the individuals, but the platforms. I don't have anything to add to that uh, other than there is an element when you look at any one slice of the solution sets we examined, there's an element of uh, sort of despair, throwing our hands up in the air uh, that, uh, that that didn't seem very satisfying. That doesn't sound like a silver bullet. Let's move on to the next one. All right. What, what can business offer us? Is there a business model solution to provide uh, security from deep fakes as a solution? And and there, that leads down a, a path that's invasive of privacy, but we may well go down that path at some point if that's what the market starts to demand. What about education? Well, we've talked about that already, and the liar's dividend is a cost. And when you get to the end, you want, as a, as a paper author, you want to either be able to identify something that looks like a silver bullet, perhaps, or at least a slew of solutions that, though individually inadequate, they're all bricks, but maybe they make a decent wall when all combined together. We come to the end and we basically say, like, look, some of these will help a little bit. Some of this we're going to have to get used to. And this is the world we're moving into. And there isn't always some Hollywood ending to these types of problem sets. On that terribly cheery note, um, let's leave it there. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much, guys. You've been listening to the ninth episode of Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Bobby Chesney and Daniel Zittrin. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineers were Michaela Fogel and Jacob Schultz, and our producer is Jen Pachehowell. Please read and review the Lawfare podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.